Well, we've been exploring over the last few weeks some God questions, some difficult questions about the existence of God, what He's like, and today we come to the question that is mysterious and puzzling and can be very challenging for us to to get our minds around the question of, is God triune? Now, the word triune is not a word that you use often, but it simply means three in one. The word trinity is is virtually the same. They're, They're synonymous with one another. They both mean three in one. Now, the word trinity does not appear anywhere in the Bible, but its teaching and its its concept permeates all of Scripture. Now, we need to understand, as we begin to look at this, is that God is infinite. And if God is infinite, that means that there's no end to Him. There is going to be mystery in our finite minds trying to be able to understand the greatness of who He is. It shouldn't bother us. It shouldn't frustrate us. It it should actually give us hope because it reminds us that there is always more and more and more to discover about God, about His goodness, about His love, about His nature. But the the issue of the Trinity has been one that is challenging for us to get our minds around. And it's oftentimes challenging for those who come out of a different religious background um, to really be able to put the pieces together. Because are there three gods? Is there one God? How does this all work? And over the years, over the centuries, we have tried different ways to try to understand the concept of the Trinity. One of my favorite ways is actually a very ancient one, and we're going to start with that because it's always good, always good to give snacks, okay? You know, I... You know what, most of the time you only get snacks when you're in the little kids' church, but here at ICP, we like to share some things with others, and so I'm going to ask, Andrew, if you'll help distribute some of these, and if, would you mind taking one of these up to the balcony? All right, here, what I have for you are pretzels. I don't know how many of you knew this, but pretzels are actually a theological food. Did anybody know that? Okay. Well, it started in 610 AD, and there was an Italian priest, an Italian monk, who was teaching his children, and he wanted to give them a reward for learning their prayers. And so he took unleavened bread, um, which is what the pretzel is. The pretzel shape is very unique, and it is intentional. The middle of a pretzel, now I, I couldn't find any normal pretzels. I found ones that taste better, so that part's good. Um, but the shape is meant to Uh, describe something. In those days, when you would pray, the posture of prayer was to put your arms together over your heart like this. And the middle of the pretzel was a reminder to pray and that they were to pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the three holes in there were a reminder of the Trinity. And the pretzel, because it was a simple food that was simply made up of, of flour and water and salt, It was one that could be used during the Lent time, during fasting, and also at Easter. In fact, long before people hid Easter eggs, back in the Middle Ages, they actually hid pretzels. That was the treat for the children. But it was all designed as a simple reward and reminder to describe that our God is three in one. Now, every illustration that we have where we try to describe what the Trinity is like is going to break down because there's no way to describe an infinite God. But at least this one of the pretzel 
is really tasty. And from now on, you know, you will be able to no longer look at the humble pretzel as a bar snack, but as a theological tool to remind you of the Trinity, right? You got something of value already today. It's a good day, okay? So enjoy your pretzels. Well, let's dive in and look at this passage because what we have in this passage is the answer to the most critical question in all of Christianity. Is Jesus Christ God? It is the most important question you and I will ever wrestle with. The deity of Jesus is the area where nearly every sect or cult and every false doctrine throughout history has been focused on. Whether or not Jesus is fully God and became fully human or whether he is something different, something less than that. It is the measurement of the central point of our faith. Who is Jesus Christ? Our passage in the scripture here in John chapter 10, Jesus is asked directly by the Jewish leaders and he is in the temple. It says in in verse um, 22 there, at the feast of dedication. The feast of dedication we know today as Hanukkah. So it's, it's wintertime, it's, it's mid-December likely, and Jesus is in the temple, he's in the courtyards at Hanukkah, which was a festival of lights that celebrated um, how God had miraculously provided oil and light during the, the time of the temple, during, uh, during the Maccabees, and, um, and it extended over a period of many days when it should have run out. God miraculously blessed. And at this celebration, the Jewish leaders have come and asked Jesus, who are you? Are you the Christ? The word Christ um, in the Hebrew word would have been Messiah. That would have been the word they, they used. But it means the anointed one, the one that they were to look for, that God was going to send to be the rescuer of his people. And Jesus answered that question and he says, I have already told you that I am, and I have shown you that I am by my works and by my miracles. But Jesus goes beyond that title, and in verse 30, makes a very bold statement where he says, I and the Father are one. We are the same. We are the same nature, the same character. We are distinct, but I am God. And so we need to understand that Jesus claims very, very clearly to be one with or fully united with God the Father. He doesn't give any room for any other explanation of who he is. Therefore, Jesus, by his own claim, cannot be just a prophet. He cannot be just a good teacher. If his claim is true, he is God. If his claim is false, then he is false. So everything within Christianity turns upon the truth of this statement. He claims to be God. When he's asked directly, he answers that he and the Father are one. Now, what's the result of that answer? If we look in in our passage here in John chapter 10, if you look at verse 31, when he makes that statement, there is an instant reaction. I want you to picture you're in the courtyard of the temple the most holy place in all of Israel. It's during a feast, a festival time. And so there are throngs of people that are gathered there to worship and to listen, to hear what um, Jesus is saying. 
And when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, verse 31 says, the Jews picked up stones against him to stone him. In other words, the response of the people, or at least of the Jewish leaders, was they wanted to kill him on the spot for claiming to be God. So they very clearly understood the statement he was making. Sometimes skeptics will make a a claim that Jesus never claimed to be God. Right here, in absolute clarity, beyond a shadow of a doubt, he makes that claim when he says, I and the Father are one. It is absolutely clear. To the Jews, claiming to be God when you are not is the highest form of offense. At the very least, if it was not true, then Jesus would have been a liar or he would have been crazy. But if it was true, then we discover so much more about our incredible, amazing God. Let's look at a little more of the story here from what we, what we read earlier. John 10, let's look at verses 32 through 39. Jesus answered them and he said, I have shown you many good works from the Father. And I want you to notice how Jesus, whenever he's talking, he never brags about himself, but he always boasts about the Father. He came to do the Father's work. That's one of the the key elements of understanding the Trinity is that they always look at one another and lift up each other. It's It's a clue to their relationship. He says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him and said, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being man, make yourself God. So you see, it was very clear they understood what he was saying. I want you to notice something else. There is no attempt to deny the miracles that are listed in the scripture. Right here, he is on trial instantly and no one is saying, you didn't feed the 5,000, you didn't heal the lame, you didn't give sight to those who were born blind, you didn't raise the dead. All those things they recognized Jesus did and they were all evidence that he was who he said he was. But because Jesus is God, if they believe that, that meant they had to listen to what he said and allow their lives to be transformed and changed by his teaching. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? And this comes out of the Psalms. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, the scripture and the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him of whom the father consecrated and sent in the world, you are blaspheming because I am the son of God. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. And again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Jesus is making very clear statements about his identity, about his nature, that he is God. And so we see here that that God, according to the Bible, is at least two in one. As we look further and explore the scriptures, we discover he truly is three in one. 
God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus gives as evidence that he is God the miracles that he has performed. <coughs> now let me show you a picture where we see in the scriptures one of the points where it's very clear that we see all three members of the, of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all encapsulated into one verse. Turn in your Bibles to the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. This is an important event because this is the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And at that moment, he wanted to show exactly who he is and who God in his fullness is. And so we see in verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus has just been baptized. At that moment, the Holy Spirit comes and descends upon him because Jesus did all his work through the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of the Father. He chose in his ministry to set aside his own power as God, as deity, and allow the Holy Spirit to work through him. Because he does that to show us when he says that those who believe in him will do greater works, it is by the same resource, the resource of the Holy Spirit. And you do it for the same reason, to bring honor and glory to the Father. So we see God the Father speaking, this is my Son, the Holy Spirit descending and resting upon Jesus, and Jesus himself as both fully God and fully human, ready to begin his ministry. The Trinity is there. The Bible teaches very clearly that there is a union of three persons who are one God. Now, the second point I, wa I want to say is it teaches that, but it is difficult for us to get our minds around it. Because the triune nature of God is a deep mystery. Because God himself is greater than our minds can fully understand. But he has revealed himself. A.W. Tozer puts it this way. The doctrine of the Trinity is truth for the heart. The fact that it cannot be satisfactorily explained instead of being against it is actually in its favor. Such a truth has to be revealed. No one could imagine it. He's saying this has to come from God because otherwise it would be a concept we could get our minds around. It is a deep mystery that points to the character and nature of God. And it's something that is more than just a theological idea. When you begin to really think about the triune nature of God, it will transform your life. A.W. Tozer goes on to say, to meditate on the three persons of the Godhead is to walk in thought through the garden eastward in Eden and to tread on holy ground. Our sincere effort to grasp the incomprehensible mystery of the Trinity must remain forever futile and only by deepest reverence can it be saved from actual presumption. He says, in other words, it's easy to just think, okay, that's a doctrine, that's true, I believe it, and never really sink deep 
into what it means. Well, let me give you at least my attempt of a definition of, the, of triune or of the Trinity. I don't know that it's the best one, but it's, it's the one that helps me to, to grab a hold of it. And it simply means this. God is one in being and three in person. One in being, three in person. With each being equal and distinct, but unified together in love as one. That's what we mean when we say the Trinity. God is not three gods. He is one being, but three persons. Being is that quality or essence that makes you what you are. I am a human being. It's what I am. You are a human being. The person is who you are. Not what you are, but who you are. Who I am is Drew Stevens. And I have all kinds of different roles and functions I perform, but that's who my person is. God is one being with three persons, but just one God. Does that make sense at least a little bit? It's okay if it doesn't yet because hopefully some of the other things that we cover both from the scripture and some some concepts will help bring it into um, understanding. Person is that quality or essence that makes you who you are. It can be defined as the center of self-consciousness, of your will. A person has mind and emotions and the ability to choose and act. They can communicate with others and, and, and are able to carry out their will. Each of the persons of the Trinity have those unique qualities of personhood. But in being, they are one. One God. Now, let's look at this a little bit in the Scripture and begin to see how we see it. Because it actually is, is, is revealed all through the Bible. Let's begin in a very important verse, especially in Judaism. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, we have what is called the Shema. And it is a prayer that, that a Jewish person would pray every single day, oftentimes multiple times a day. And it begins with this very simple thing. It says, hear, O Israel, which the Hebrew word for hear is Shema. That's why this is called the Shema. So it means, listen, listen to this truth. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now that word one is the word in Hebrew, ehud. And it means, it can mean the number, uh, the number one, like an ordinal number where you're counting one, two, three, four. But its primary meaning is unity, wholeness. When he says, The Lord our God, the Lord is unified. He is one. That's what it means. What the scriptures show is that, because ultimately what it means by this is that um, this is the fullness of who God is, is that his unity um, describes the greatness of who he is. What the scriptures show is that God, out of the overflow of his love, made you and I to share in an already existing relationship. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. The greatest commandment in all the Scripture is to love your Lord with all your heart. In fact, the very next verses within the Shema are 
a command to love. But to love requires a relationship, does it not? We see, one of the things, we'll explore this in a little bit, but I'm going to give you a preview. We see in the scriptures that one of the, one of, um, the descriptors of God is that God is love. If God is only one being and one person, before creation, whom did he love? There's no one to love if you're only you. There's only one person. Love requires a relationship. In fact, in in trying to wrestle with this, what we discover is that if God is not a trinity, then God is not love. Because love requires three things. A lover, number one. A beloved, number two. And number three, a relationship between them. The great um, thinker Augustine described the Trinity in this way. He used that same idea. He, He compared the Trinity with the love that involves a lover, God the Father, the loved one, God the Son, and the spirit of love between them, the Holy Spirit. All three are required for that relationship. And that's why love ultimately is the picture and the answer for, to enable us to understand the mystery of the Trinity. If we were to look at the gods of other religions, if we were to look for a moment, for instance, at the God of Islam, the God of Islam is not a God where the definition would be say God is love. Because he is solitary. And even in his promise in the, in the Quran, where it promises those who follow him paradise, do you realize that paradise is not a place where Allah is? He does not choose to be with his people. It is a place for them, but not a place for him. There is a radical difference between what is described in the Bible than any other God. Only the God of Christianity is a God of love and a God of relationship. This is why in 1 John, John goes on to pick up some incredible themes from his gospel. And and he says in 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is is love in this the love of god was made manifest among us made known that god sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him god from the beginning of time chose to express his love for the for the son and for the holy spirit and the the son of the the love of the son and of the holy spirit for the father and the love of the father and of the son for the holy spirit They always were involved in a beautiful love relationship. You see, if that's not true, then God was lacking and he had to create things in order to have something to love. But what we see in the scripture is out of the love that already existed, the greatest relationship in all of the universe, out of the overflow of that, God created us. And he created this world because he simply wanted the love that was within the Godhead to grow even bigger. Now that should give us some incredible hope because that points to where God ultimately wants to take you and I and that is into this relationship. 
We're going to end with with what I believe is the most powerful statements about the Trinity in John chapter 17, where Jesus is praying for you and I to be one. One in the same way that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are. And not just one with one another in a unity of the body of Christ, but to be unified and come into His relationship. That's how much God loves us. He doesn't just want to give us a get-out-of-hell-free card. He wants you and I to experience the love relationship that He enjoys with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it is absolutely beautiful. That's why we see in this description, the first thing that we see after John says God is love is that he describes the love of the Father. For when he writes God is love at the end of verse 8, he's referring to the Father. And his very next words in verse 9 state, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son. See, love is always other-focused. And so he sends the one he loves most dearly, his son, to rescue us because in his love, he wants to embrace you and I. And our sin had separated us from God and from that relationship. Well, let's look back and let's go, let's go see where we see traces of, of the triune nature of God. Let's go back to the very beginning. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Because this is the first place that we actually see the Trinity. And it's beautiful. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, if God is only one being and one person, whom, to whom is he speaking at the beginning? To speak, generally, you would assume there is an audience. Well, he is speaking to himself. And we see here in this passage, we see God the Father being listed in the beginning. God, he's referring to the Father. We also see that the Spirit of God is hovering over the deep. So we see God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And when he speaks, what we discover is that God the Word is the Son. When there is speaking, when God is revealing himself, it is God the Son. This is why John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. Now there's something very interesting about even this phrase, um, in the beginning. It was a struggle to a certain degree for the Jewish scholars centuries ago when they began to translate the scriptures into... Um, um, the local dialect of the people in that they realize that in the beginning actually has two meanings. It can mean the beginning as in the start of things. It also can mean from the firstborn. It's a legitimate translation. And so you have at least subtly implied that the agent of creation was the firstborn. 
That's why we see throughout the rest of the scripture that it claims that Jesus is the agent of creation. All things were created by him, Colossians says, and for him. And he is before all things, and as as was quoted in our prayer time, and in him all things hold together. That's speaking of Jesus Christ. So we see at the very beginning, God the Word, God who is the Son of God, Jesus, God the Holy Spirit is hovering over the deep, and God the Father are there present in the very, very beginning of creation. If we look down further um, and explore it, look at verse 26. And I'm going to read verse 26 to you, not in um, a Christian translated Bible, but I'm going to read it to you from the the Jewish Tanakh version that's put into, into English. It's going to sound exactly the same, but I want you to know this is precisely what the words say. Verse 26, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Notice it's all plural. One being, three persons, all together. The word for God in Hebrew is the word Elohim. It is a plural word. The singular word would be El, but Elohim is plural. And it means the fullness of God, the fullness of his relationship as three persons who are one God, one being. They are both distinct and individual. Now, to help us really understand that, I have a diagram that I skipped, skipped over that's often used to describe the Trinity. If you could put that, the diagram up of its, its way back towards point two, because uh, I skipped it. What we, see, <laughs> what we see here is oftentimes a triangle is used to help us get an understanding of the Trinity because it's three equal sides, but one shape, one, one triangle. And so we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and they are distinct because it's important to understand that God doesn't become the Son and become the Holy Spirit. He doesn't change forms from one to the other. He is all three all at once. And so each one is distinct um, and each one is equally God. And the focus of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is always towards loving, building up, and glorifying the others. You see that all through the Scripture, Jesus is always pointing to the Father. The Holy Spirit is always drawing people to the Son. The Father is always lifting up and exalting the name of Jesus because it's out of love, and love is always other-focused. That's the Trinity. That's this great mystery in a simple way. All right, well, let's let's go on and look at it a little bit more. God is love. That is ultimately the picture of the Trinity. But God, because of his character and his nature, when he created things, left his fingerprints on nearly everything he created. I don't know if you've thought about this, but do you realize how many things within our natural world are actually three in one? Where there is one entity, but three persons, forms, or aspects or ideas that make it up. It permeates all kinds of things. For instance, the first one is space. Space is made up of three dimensions. 
height, width, and depth. You need all three to make space. Otherwise, it's not three-dimensional space. It would be a piece of, if it was only two-dimensional space, it'd be like a piece of paper. If it was only one-dimensional space, it would be a point, right? Just a dot. Um, even that doesn't really work. You can't have space without three dimensions. But it's one space, right? We exist within height, width, and depth. That's space. Time, likewise, has a three-component nature. Past, present, and future. These are the fingerprints of God's nature on the things that he made. Matter is the same way. The chemical makeup of, uh, has three states uh, of, of, of the things that we see in matter. There's solid, liquid, and gas or vapor. Even an atom or a molecule, it is one element consisting of three, uh, of three things, protons, neutrons, and electrons. Humanity. Single beings are a unified component of body, mind, and spirit. These are the fingerprints of God. Now, they aren't, they aren't the same. You can't use those as examples um, to point to God because one of the things, you know, sometimes even I've used uh, as an example of the Trinity, I've used, you know, how water has three different states. It can be ice. It can be liquid. It can be vapor. Um, the problem is it, it transforms from one to the other, except at 1.6 degrees centigrade. I don't know if you knew this. This is extra bonus points today. But at 1.6 degrees centigrade, water actually exists as a solid, as a liquid, and as a vapor all at the same time. So at that exact point, it shows what the Trinity is like. There you go. (laughs) Bonus points for that. All right, what, what are some other things where God's put his fingerprint on? What makes up a family? Father? Mother, children, three in one. And one of the greatest ones is do you realize that for you to exist actually required a moment where within who you are was a trinity? Your conception required mom, dad, and you at your start, there's a period of time in which the nuclei and the information from both of those are all existent three in one in the beginning of those cells and that's how your life came about. Without that, you wouldn't be. God designed to point to who he was in his nature in almost everything he created. Now, let me give you another one because sometimes... Sometimes seeing something, some of us are, are, um, are more auditory than visual. So I'm going to attempt to do this, which is really dangerous. Oops, how about this? Okay, there, that's the right one. <laughs> Thank you. Does anybody know what that is? It's a chord. It happens to be a C chord, which is one of the two I know. Um, so there you go. That's a C chord, and it is one chord, right? But three notes. Every major chord is one chord, three notes. God left his imprint even on the beauty of music. Now, it loses its part when you start getting into diminished sevenths and all that kind of stuff. But the main chord is made up of one chord and three notes. All right. Now, I'm going to give you my favorite one because this is the illustration in the scripture that God himself gives about his nature. 
And it has to do with fire, with light, with a flame. Light itself is made up of three forms of waves. There are chemical waves, which is energy. There are light waves, which you can see. And there are heat waves or heat rays. Now, what's interesting is that the chemical rays, you can neither neither see nor um, can you feel them. But they are absolutely real. The chemical reaction that is going on inside of a flame is the consumption of oxygen and fuel of the things that come around it. But you can't see it and you can't feel it. But you also have what you can see, which is the light that comes out of the flame. And you also have the heat that is rising up from the flame. You can see the light, but you can't feel it. You can feel the heat, but you cannot see it, except for when it's heat waves rising up in the horizon. Sometimes you can see a glimpse of the waves, but that really even that is light. In the scripture, when God is describing himself and he chooses an illustration to say, this is what I am like, the choice he made was fire. It tells us time and time again in the scripture, our God is a consuming fire. So much so that like the energy that is happening inside of a flame, we as humans cannot approach him without being consumed. This is why when we see God beginning to reveal himself, when he reveals himself to Moses, what does he appear as? He appears as a flame in a burning bush that he chooses not to consume. And Moses goes and looks at that and he, and he hears speaking out of the flame He sees the light and he hears out of the flame a voice that is speaking. That points to God the Son. Because God the Son is the one who reveals God to us. This is what it tells us in Hebrews. Is that um, God is continually revealing himself. He's revealed himself in creation. He's revealed himself in his word. And in these last times, he has revealed himself through his Son. The most intimate and powerful way he is telling us what he is like. And out of the light comes forth the Son. That's why the Scripture says, and Jesus says about himself, I am the light of the world. He is God being revealed in the same way that the light waves out of a flame are something you and I can understand and see with our eyes. But the energy that's going on underneath is a consuming fire. That's why the scripture tells us that you and I cannot see God. We cannot approach God on our own because we would be consumed. When God came down to Israel and his presence dwelt there in the pillar of fire, um, the people were afraid. They were afraid to even go near the mountain because they were afraid they would be consumed. Because our God is absolutely holy and pure. And anything that is not holy would be consumed in his presence. But that's not the only aspect of God's person. God is not just the energy. He is also the light that is revealing himself to us. 
And he is also the heat that is warming and comforting and drawing us to him. That reflects and gives us a glimpse of the work and the role of the Holy Spirit who is our helper, our comforter, the one who surrounds us. Now, even this illustration, which God chose and is absolutely beautiful, when we begin to ponder on it, it breaks down because it's a physical thing trying to describe an infinite being. But it perhaps gives us the greatest picture of what God is like. He says, now listen to what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now, as I started really pondering that, I realized, you know, I've known that God is holy, but the very next phrase that he mentions has to do with relationship. God in his purity desires us in a relationship with him. That's why he is a jealous God. He doesn't want us to chase after false gods because we will miss out on the relationship that he created for us to be a part of. He goes on in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35. He says, To you it has been shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is none other besides him. Out of the heaven he lets you hear his voice that he might discipline you and on earth let you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire see jesus the son even before his incarnation was god revealing himself through the person of his son it is god coming to us aw tozer has a great phrase where he says that jesus is the manward side of god and what he means by that is when it's the illustration of the moon. You realize that there's only one side of the moon that any of us, except for astronauts and cosmonauts, have ever seen. It is the side that faces the earth. The backside, no one has ever seen except for those who have gone into space and had orbited or landed on the moon. Jesus is God revealed to us. It is his voice. It is his light coming towards us it is like the flame isaiah uses the same kind of theme he says who among us can dwell with the consuming fire whom among us can be in his presence but jesus is the light god revealed drawing us closer and closer to him and the interesting thing about this revelation is that light and sound go together. I don't know about you, but we, Becky and I come from a, an area of the, of, the, of the world where there are a lot of forest fires. And I can tell you there is no louder sound in all the universe than a fire. Even the, the, the sound we think of, thunder, thunder is the sound of fire. It is the sound of lightning. It is the sound of fire in heaven. And that's why when the scripture says the voice of the Lord breaks the, the cedars and it can bring down the mountains, it is powerful because the voice of the Lord is Jesus speaking, revealing God's nature to us. God, through his son, has chosen to reveal himself to us so that we could know him. And God, through his Holy Spirit, has chosen to draw us closer to him so that we 
may feel him within us. He has given us the Holy Spirit as a deposit, as a guarantee. You see, the the Trinity is not just a theological concept. It is a relational reality that God invites you and I into. And let me conclude with these verses that Jesus says, Jesus' prayer from John chapter 17. Verse 20, he says this. He's praying right before his crucifixion. He says, he's prayed prayed for his disciples and then he expands that. He says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. See, Jesus is eternal. He's not created in any way. He was always with the Father. So is the Holy Spirit. And their love was before creation. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus' prayer is the fulfillment of what he created us for in the first place. To be united together through faith in Jesus Christ with one another and to come into the most beautiful relationship in all the universe, the love of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. It's not just doctrine. It's not just difficult ideas. It ultimately is a love relationship that God valued so much he was willing to give his son so that you and I could experience it. And you see, when we understand how much he loves us, it changes absolutely everything. The scripture says that true love casts out fear. When you understand how much God the Father loves God the Son, And then you understand that he has invited us into that love and made us joint heirs with Jesus. It should cast away any fear. When you realize the extent he was willing to go to rescue us, it should transform us because he is offering us not just life, not just a way to deal with our problems, but the deepest, most fulfilling most joyful love relationship you could ever imagine. So amazing, it will take all of eternity for us to even begin to comprehend its beauty and its depth. My challenge for you is look at the scriptures. Explore the love that God the Father has for the Son. Explore the honor that Jesus places upon the Holy Spirit and realize that you have been invited into that relationship, into that love.
because that's how much God loves us. Dear Heavenly Father, I realize that human words are incredibly inadequate to describe the greatness of who you are. So I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would push past the inadequacy and that your spirit would give testimony of Jesus Christ and testimony and glory to the Father and speak it directly into the hearts and minds of each person here. Lord, let us not go away from this place the same. Let us ponder upon the greatness of who you are, of your relationship, of the love that you have as the Trinity. And understand that you were willing to break that love, to give that love when you put our sin upon the Savior, upon Jesus Christ. You turned your back upon him that you loved most so that through his sacrifice, we could come into your holy presence. And Lord, not be consumed in judgment, but Lord, one day, be consumed by your love. Oh, Lord, help us to, to let that sink into our hearts and become a reality that transforms us. For your love is immeasurable. Lord, would you speak to each and every person here? Would you show them how, how much you care for them? Lord, we believe that you are God the Father, you are God the Son. You are God the Holy Spirit. And we choose this day to worship you in the fullness of who you are. May you be exalted and glorified on high, we pray. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, amen.